Welcome to the More Than Podcast with Azalea Hart and Ryan Hinkson. Today we're joined by two of my favorite people, your mom and grandma's favorite YouTuber, Chris De La Rosa, and my favorite person to order food for me, Eva Chin. Welcome, guys. <laughs> so for people who don't know who you guys are, what you do, can you please introduce yourselves? I do order a lot of food for my friends. You do? That and is, I love it every time. I'm like, oh. identity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the executive chef at Aveling and uh, also co-founder of Soylent Club pop-up series. Um, and yeah, an avid food order. There you go. Love that. Um, Chris De La Rosa. I'm pretty much the founder of CaribbeanPod.com where I'm trying to do something our forefathers never did, and that is document recipes that we grew up on in the Caribbean um, in a manner can share it globally where everything is measured. And, you know, to this day, if I contact my mom and I'm making a dish and I need help with it, well, son, in her Trini accent, mind you, Trinbegonian, um, we got to represent Tobago as well. Um, a, a pinch of this, a dash of that, and I'm like, mom, 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 more precise. And by doing so, by having precise measurements and everything on the website, um, the website took off and leads me to bigger and better things. I have uh, two published cookbooks. One was a bestseller on Amazon, and my YouTube channel is just massive. I'm building out other social media platforms, and that's where I'm at today. So where you started, Chris, that's mm -hmm. a real thing. I remember being one of those kids that like just was lucky enough to have a family that where everybody cooked. So I never, you know, had to do anything for myself. And then the first time I was moving out, I was like, what am I going to do for food? So I spent like two months in the kitchen with my parents and it was the same thing. Just, oh, average this, average that. Oh, how much? A little. I was like, we have measuring cups. We've got like... <laughs> you know, sp spoons with like very specific measurements and like the documentation, we always laugh it off as like kind of a, a joke in the Caribbean community, but like there's no recipes that are handed down in like a traditional manner within the household. So I think that's a very, very cool thing that you're doing. Yeah, no disrespect to our forefathers because I mean, let's say you, you look at where we came from, Africa, India, China, wherever it is that um, besides the colonizers, they all have that verbal way of passing down things. Right. Um, and that was just what they did in the Caribbean for the most part. Mm -hmm. You will find a few people do have some written recipes, but they would have had a better connection to the colonizers, like the, the British. So when the British came, they would have influenced people to write down some of these recipes, whereas with us, we never did. So, and it's not just about documenting the recipes um, with measurements and, and, and text that they can read. I also do pictures. So visually, you can see step-by-step procedure to get to the end point kind of thing you add video to that and boom man sweet sailing there for everybody i'm dumbing down caribbean food for everybody right right that's awesome and eva in terms of uh recipes that you know you've made your own did you did you find the same kind of thing as you were did you have home learning in terms of what you're putting on plates now is your style all your own what's your what's your backstory in terms of um you know where you are at today I think it's a mixture half and half. I think uh, I, you know, I also grew up with uh, secrets, recipes that my family withhold from me. 
You know, the favorite answer that some of my aunties would give me is like, oh, you'll find out when you're married. I'm like, great. <laughs> <laughs> or the other answer would be like, oh, you're not, you're not good enough to know this. You're just going to do the chopping part, you know? Right. And then, you know, as I grew older, I realized that they were just, they were trying to shield me away from actually becoming a housewife. They wanted me to do bigger, better things, be in office. And I completely failed at that, and I've decided to be a chef. Right. And you know, in the first 10, 12 years of my career, I was following recipes that aren't my own, and I had no problem executing that. It's gotten me really far. But in the recent years, as I am trying to, you know, represent my cultural heritage through cooking, and I'm realizing that I have so much gaps to piece together. And I'm really, really lucky that all the knowledge I've learned from cooking has helped me try to fill in those gaps just you know from cooking common sense and from from techniques but I feel like I'm still deciphering <laughs> a lot of messages left behind from my ancestors and from my family that I have yet to to discover and learn well I know that you were born and raised on a farm in Hawaii yeah and your bio says that you've taken inspiration from the mountains ocean and earth and you've put that into your food can you elaborate a little bit on that well, I, I mean, I'm still doing the same thing right now um, in Canada. For instance, how, how do you make Asian food sustainable? How do you make, you know, Hawaiian food sustainable? How do I bring that sentiment and those flavors across the world and anywhere I am? And that's by utilizing what's around me. You know, here in Canada, there's a lot of things that are unavailable here that I grew up eating in Hawaii, but I find a lot of similarities in terms of whether it's vegetation or seafood, what I'm trying to aspire and learning is how to make um, translating our culture and our food more sustainable and more acceptable through different environments. I love that. And Chris, I know you're Trini. We talk about this mm -hmm. all the time because all the Trinis outnumber the Bayesians right now. We'll say that for sure. <laughs> Can you explain where your passion from food comes from? Because you said it's not only Trini food that you're focusing on, it's Caribbean food as a whole. Well, the, the, the base, we got to pay respect to the origins, which is Trinidad and Tobago. I was, I was brought up in a house where, not just a house, but a community, a village where everyone can cook. The smells in the morning, and, and a prime example is Christmas time. You open your windows in the morning and all the smells, Christmas time, the recipes are totally different. So it's, you're more aware of the food and stuff like that. I would mimic my mom and dad. Um, um, you know, like Sunday lunch in Trinidad and Tobago is one of the biggest meals of the week. And, and part of that preparation how was always seasoning the meats the night before. And my job as a little kid, man, uh, the, the kitchen garden, um, the kitchen garden was my thing. I had to go and pick the herbs for my mom to season the chicken. And that is probably where it started. Now, I was never one to always be in the house and in the kitchen, but in passing, I always watched and looked. And, and, and with my mom, two boys, two girls, she never, I mean, it's old school Caribbean, but she never, never assigned gender roles for us. We all had to share duties in doing things. And you know, we build on that and then I look back my grandmother on my father's side was 104 when she passed away. My grandmother on my mother's side was 99. And I would always go and help them go to the store. We, we call it the shop, go up to the village shop and buy the stuff. And there was always a connection to food. And that is where the base is. Now today, I'm fortunate enough that things are really taking off. And I'm able to travel throughout the Caribbean because, you know, when we look at Caribbean food, 
We don't seem to remember there's also a French connection because of the French Caribbean, a Dutch Caribbean, a Spanish Caribbean. So we have all these different influences that is just incorporating into who we are as an identity as from, from a food perspective. So the ability to travel and study and watch and and it's, 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 also, it's always a learning thing, but it's always a sharing thing. So once I learn, I pass it on, basically. So earlier, Eva had mentioned that, you know, through these secrets, it was almost like the auntie's protecting her from, you know, entering a world where cooking would be part of, you know, her DNA and, and her future. And, um, you know, it's funny because there's so many different ways, like, you know, certain lenses you know, cooking and being a chef is such a highly regarded profession. And then in other regards, it's, it, you can be seen as like, oh, that's something that someone without skill does. And I find like, don't, you know, those lines can be drawn, whether it's the head chef and then back of house, front of house. There's a, a whole world in, in this kind of, you know, uh, food world that chops up, not for making, you know, trying to make food references, but like chops up into signs, different roles and levels of like respect to it. And uh, the name of this episode is More Than Cheap Eats because I know, you know, there's a, a common perception that's held that, you know, Caribbean food, Chinese food, different Asian cuisines are cheap eats or that, you know, they should be only assigned a certain value or importance. Um, you know, people sometimes get thrown off if they're, you know, being charged a certain amount that they're not comparable to, say, a French or a European experience. Where do you two land in terms of... Um, educating people as to, you know, how beautiful and uh, just as merit-worthy these cuisines are. Uh, you know, here's the thing, Ryan. Um, we are part to blame for that as well, too. As new immigrants to a new country, we're always looking for cheap. And, and sometimes if that's the price we're willing to pay, it, it just seems to, to come together by, by, by how much the Caribbean restaurant is going to charge us kind of thing. Then you look at how we present the food as well, too. And I call, you know, that styrofoam white box, I call it the white coffin. <laughs> because everything that goes wow, in there, it sweats, it, it all mm -hmm. congeals, everything just comes together. Right. You take a curry chicken and rice or something, you take it home, you put it in your car in the summertime, by the time you get home an hour away from work, that is going bad already. Another yeah. thing is we don't educate Tell us this is going to go bad in an hour or something. How to take it home with us and stuff like that. Right. Um, it starts there. Um, the, the way we look at our food and we expect it to, to, to be cost, I think we're part to blame of that uh, our food is not, doesn't have the merit to be, to be worth more, charge more, um, to be even taken seriously. Hmm. Um, it's just one of them things, you know? Interesting. Eva, thoughts? Well, I'm, I'm born and raised American, so obviously my view comes from a perspective of U.S. history. And Chinese food specifically, mm -hmm. in my knowledge, it was meant to be cheap, fast, and easy because it had to. So, you know, when, when Chinese slave workers for the railroad was brought to America, they were granted a quarter of the break time that their Caucasian railroad workers were given. They were only given a quarter of the paycheck that they were given. Mm -hmm. And so the very first Chinese restaurants in America built were specifically along the highway, well, what is known as the highway now, but 
along the route of where the railroad was meant to be built. And it was meant to be a cafeteria and a canteen for Chinese workers. And the price had to be cheap to fit their wage. It had to be fast to make sure that they can eat and go back to work within the small short break time that they were given. Right. And this, this cemented, you know, Chinese food's impression in America. And number two, a uh, big factor is that Chinese food is served with bones. It's served with a lot of things that North Americans are not deemed worthy. Right. And so amongst all these reasons, for some reason, no one ever came out to, to change this, to speak up, to educate. And as years got by, our stories and our voices became silenced. Right. And it became a thing. Right. And now we're on to the, you know, the 20th century, and people still think that Chinese food should be cheap, fast, and easy without even understanding how it began in the first place. Right. So to me, that is, that's definitely one of the biggest hurdles yeah. I see for Chinese food. Right. And that's a, that's a huge point. Like, I didn't, I'm, I mean, you know, there's like a common understanding that obviously the workers would not be treated the same. But when you break it down to like that, you know, quarter of break time, and what has to happen. And I'm wondering if that kind of ties into Chris's point. Because I, as you know, the, with the work that I do in terms of creating content around food and feeling a responsibility to, to highlight and show Caribbean food within my feed, that's something I, I've struggled with, you know, presentation, um, you know, getting what you refer to as that styrofoam or that white coffin um, and getting that food to kind of present and look and feel in a, the same way as something that may come out in a different manner. Um, do you, do you have any insight? Are there any kind of stories or, or aspects that kind of led to how, you know, that food was maybe set up that way? Uh, you know, to be honest with you, I've never given much thought to that. What I have given thought to, and, and you see it in, in when I share recipes online, I want people to understand that, and you know, earlier we popped the food in the, in the, um, the, microwave or, or the toaster oven and stuff like that to heat it up. And you wouldn't find those things in a Caribbean restaurant. It's low and slow and takes a long time. The time factor alone, forget the price of oxtail and even chicken feet and all those things today. Mm -hmm. The time factor alone, I want people to understand when I share this recipe, it's going to take you an hour or two hours to do something at home. Right. That is the same amount of time or even more that these restaurant chefs are taking so when you go and buy an oxtail, that oxtail has been cooking for three hours, at, oh, least, yeah. at least three hours. Mm -hmm. So let's put a price on just the time alone. Forget the overhead of the businesses and stuff like that. Forget the price of the oxtail. Um, and, you know, we wear a T-shirt, make oxtail cheap again. <laughs> um, that time, I want people to understand there's a lot of time going to preparing our foods. Right, mm -hmm. right. And ingredients, spices, right? It's not just technique and process. It's the same for Chinese food, too. You know, you, you take a roast duck, you roast it. Same, literally the same duck, same farm, same breed, two different restaurants, and you take a modern hip eatery right now, you know, on a major intersection, and they're taking that duck, and they're, they're piling really good ingredients on it, and they're roasting it, and they can sell that for $40, $50. But you go to a Chinese restaurant, they are using humble, you know, it is a humble, it's a humble duck dish. There's only three ingredients to it. But what you don't factor in is six days of drying the duck skin, two days of marinating, one whole day where one person is in charge of roasting that duck, moving it every half an hour, basting it every hour. That is, and that is tied to cultural stories. 
So when our cultural stories are silenced, when our history is silenced, so does the value of our food and the product of our cultures. Yeah, to tie, you know, the other thing about that, Eva, is that you look at the history of it. That is not 10 years old or 100 years old. It's centuries old. Mm. You have to charge a cost for that as well. There's got to be a cost to pay for that because a three, four centuries old recipe, come on now, man. There's a value to that. So where do you want to see uh, food go in your process of, as, a, as a chef? Where do you, are you trying to change things? I'm trying in, my, in the best I can for my platform. And I think I, for me, food is story. That's the f number one thing I, I believe in. And food is story and story is, is where the value is at. It's what's capturing people. And in my power, on my platform, what I try to do is tell stories through the food. I want people to be captivated with the stories. I want them to be curious about the stories. Mm -hmm. And from that curiosity, I will then want to educate furthermore about why this dish is important, why this story is important, what it ties to where we are right now. Can you give us one example of one dish, what the story would be? I have to put you on the spot for that one. I <laughs> Whatever. Um, one of you your know, favorites, I recently, you know, I recently hosted a collaboration dinner with my good friend Lucas. Um, he's, a, he's a New York City-based chef that cooks Chinese food, too. And together, we are trying to share a passion for telling, you know, our stories through food. One of the recent dishes we did was, it's called bamboo pole noodle. That's because our ancestors would tie a bamboo pole to the end of a table with about two inches above the table. And that two inches, they're going to fit the dough of the noodle. And all this man does is hop on one foot while sitting sideways on this bamboo pole. And the flexibility of the bamboo is what jumps up and down to press that dough. That dough gets pressed for about 10 hours, resting included, mixing included. And it is a nose-to-tail dish, head-to-tail dish, because the shrimp row of the shrimp gets toasted, dehydrated, folded into the dough so you can see specks of it. And then the shrimp shells turn into oil and a vinaigrette to serve with the sauce. And it's a very humble dish. In fact, it's so humble that they actually don't serve the shrimp itself. The shrimp itself gets made into wontons for another dish. Um, but to me, this, the value of this dish shows, number one, how thrifty my ancestors are. There's no, there's no waste, and there's all flavor in this dish. They honor every part of the ingredient. And number two is how much skill it goes into just flour, eggs, and water. And it baffles me that pasta is given such a prominent platform. And yet, I am looking at the most original of noodle dough making, and that has zero platform, zero voice, zero story spread. And I can't believe people are more interested in the story of pasta than this. But that's just my own opinions. So through, say like, uh, could you talk us through an evening at Soy Luck and kind of what that's doing to help further you know, this, this cause that you've taken on. And, and before you jump in, I'd, I'd ask you to both think about this. Um, how much pressure do you feel um, being advocates for more than just, you know, the sharing of recipes or the preparing of food, but, you know, repping your culture and um, <clears throat> being someone that people look to. And I know sometimes we don't always put that cape on as, you know, whether it be advocate, role model to some, um, you know, how, how does that feel? And do you feel like it can never, the responsibility that comes with um, educating takes away from, from the, the craft that, 
that jumped everything off for you guys? I think more than ever, I feel like time is, is running out. Because of COVID, we are losing more and more talent within our culture. And, you know, that talent is also 50, 60 years old. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people retiring in the culinary industry in, in China and in Hong Kong. And you know what? Their sons, their daughters, their family, they don't want anything to do with it. It's hard. It's hard work. And I feel if in my generation, if all the Asian-American chefs who have the ability to try to learn and respread that legacy. I want to be able to do it. I want us to all be able to do it or else it's going to be lost. I mean, I haven't, I haven't set foot in Hong Kong since 2019. I don't know what it's like right now. Right. And for all I know, in the next time I go there, half of the restaurants I used to go to might be closed already. Yeah. And, you know, more than ever, I feel the, the pressure that time is running out because the more we are progressing, the more these old things are being forgotten. But these are the basics. These are the foundations of what we want to. And you can see the gap. There are a lot of Asian American chefs trying to do a lot of things right now. And I commend them for that and I applaud them for that. But I definitely see a gap in their understanding of the authenticity and genuine, the genuine information and stories of the culture rather than just putting something on because they think it needs to be. What makes a dish Chinese? What makes your dish Chinese? What is the story? Is it just adding an ingredient? And I think, you know, at Soila Club, wherever I cook, to be honest, that is what I'm trying to piece together is how am I translating the story, this ingredient, why we're using it, what's the importance to our culture to it? Yeah, uh, the sort of hurdle I see, and, and it's a combination of things that, that brings up this hurdle is um, the platforms that I use. Whereas Eva has an actual brick and mortar Mm-hmm. I am all virtual. Everything yeah. is online. Mm-hmm. So we've got online where everybody wants to be number one. Everybody wants to be clouted for being number one. And then two, you look at what colonialism, slavery, and indentureship left with us. That sort of only one could be tops. And we tried to knock everybody down. Mommy would say crabs in a barrel kind of thing. Right. So rather than all of us trying to come together to elevate. Now, here's the thing. Eh? I have over... 1,100 recipes on, on YouTube. 1,100. Come on. Say that one more time. 1,100 recipes on YouTube. Okay. And I've barely touched the surface. You look at it and you will barely see a Haitian recipe or a recipe from Guadeloupe or Dominican mm-hmm. Republic or, 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 or even Aruba and Curacao. Right. There's so much room for us. Millions and millions of people log into YouTube every day. But we're worried about being number one. You always see number one Caribbean chef, number one mm-hmm. this... I really don't care. It is about me sharing my culture. And I think, you know, we see all this hate and everything else going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, I invite you to my house. I feed you a nice meal. We can be brothers and sisters like no tomorrow. For sure. You know what I mean? For sure. So part of the thing is that the legacy of slavery, colonialism, everything else, it's, it's kept us down and we don't unite and, and uplift each other the way we should be doing it. Right. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm wondering about, uh, you know, the pressure, to, again, to adapt your cuisine, I guess for you, Eva, um, do you feel like you have to make it, say, whether it's less spicy, less traditional, mm-hmm. do you feel like you have to try to invite others in? Do you, or are you completely like, I'm not changing a thing? 
Because um, I, I know a lot of uh, chefs, restaurateurs, when they're, um, when they're here, they feel like you know, they've got to kind of adjust traditional recipes to a more North American or Canadian palate for acceptance, for understanding. Um, where, actually, for both of you, where, where do you guys land on that in terms of you know, changing things? I think I use the word balance, um, and that is genuinely in a culinary perspective. It's not, I, I want to take away the sentiment where it, it has to be a regional thing, it has to be an ethnic thing. Any cuisine at the highest peak of its form is about balance. Even when I am studying and learning and, and chatting with the top Chinese chefs right now cooking in China, it's not about how spicy, it's not about how strong the flavor is. It has to be a balance, and that is the highest peak of cooking. And what I want to make sure is I want Asian cuisine seen as equal. Right. That, that cooking good Asian cuisine isn't about how much spice, how much soy is used. And it's the balance. It's texture. It's balance. It's the level of the heat of cooking, the fire range. And to me, that's what I've been trying to, to, to teach about Chinese cooking, about Asian cooking. The balance of different textures and flavors more than just, oh, this has to be spicy just because it's from here. And even today, so you ordered lunch for us um, because this is what you do. You order us food. And you said that the fried rice that is here, you said it's too bland and that you feel like white people are not going to order that because it's too, but I had it, I thought it was super tasty. But why do you think, is, is it because it looks so different from what fried rice supposed to look like? Yeah, I mean, fried rice, lo mein, there is Chinese American lo mein and there's real Cantonese lo mein. There's Chinese American fried rice where you see frozen vegetables like peas and carrots on there. You don't ever see peas and carrots in fried rice when you're in China. In fact, fried rice is, rice is a vessel, and it's the very specific two, three combinations you attach to it to make that fried rice a fried rice. It shouldn't be, you should never load a pizza with all these different flavors, too. You want very specific flavors. And for me, my favorite fried rice is the stem of a kailan with dried scallop, shredded dried scallop, and egg whites. Something about a very egg white, egg white flavor that matches the umami and the brininess of dried scallop. However, these are all offcuts, if you notice. This is the stem of a vegetable. This is the egg white, the undesirable part of an egg. And this is dried scallop, a dried, hung dried, smoky, chewy type of dried seafood. None of these fit the North American pantry. However, it is these most humblest ingredients that actually create the most intensity and balance of a fried rice and gives the most flavor. That's what I, that's what I believe in. Yeah, because I didn't know that you don't put carrots <laughs> in your fried rice. So, see, we're learning new things. We're learning new things. Actually, you know, it's, it's interesting when you talk about the offcuts because I find that a lot of, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, ethnic cuisines, um, you know, through whether it's slavery, um, poverty, you know, it, it's built on making do. You know what I mean? And taking what was kind of thrown to us and making magic from it. You know, when you talk about oxtails, you talk about chicken wings, you're talking about, like you said, the whites. Um, and then often we find that, you know, once we've kind of perfected these things, you know, they're kind of taken back. Oh, yeah. um, and then the price on those things yeah. drive, drive up. Uh, is that, is that frustrating? Is that reward for ingenuity? No, it's very frustrating. Yeah. You know, you look at, look at goji berries. Right. 
Goji berries is very, very traditional Chinese, Chinese traditional medicine. It's been used for centuries. And, you know, all of a sudden it's a superfood now. But in an agricultural perspective, goji berries take a long time, almost 13 years to grow. And now we're mass churning it out yeah. for granola. Yeah, right. It doesn't make sense to me, right. you know. And the need to constantly make something fit the market, you know, that's how the Queen of Kanji came to life from Eugene, Oregon. You know, we got this Caucasian lady who went to China for six months, and she thinks kanji is the best thing that ever happened to her. But mm. she knows for a fact that it won't be able to sell in the North American market. So she came back to America, she started her own kanji brand, and she started adding like coconut, shaved coconut to it, and chia seeds, and I'm like, kanji is the number one surviving food of war and poverty in China. And here you're going to bouge it up and try to tell people, this is how we're gonna sell it. You know, you look at situations like that, that is exactly what's wrong in glamification of, and, and cultural misappropriation of our food and our culture, without even thinking what kanji even represents. It's gruel. It's food for the sick. It's food for the poor. It's food of struggle. Why are we putting coconut in it? Right. right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess, I guess my goji berry would be coconut oil. And I have a funny story. Um, as a kid growing up, we grew up in, in a small village called Guaracara in south central Trinidad Tobago. And we were not, there was a river across the street in the old cocoa and coffee plantation. And we were never allowed to go swimming in the river without an adult. But my brother and I, we still went swimming. But every time we would come back home, mom would know we went swimming. Why did you? Well, we didn't go, mom. Yes, you did. And then we figured out it's because it left a film on our skin, <laughs> a white ashy film on our legs. She would know right away we went swimming. So we started packing a little bottle of coconut oil. So when we were done swimming, we would rub down our skin, our arms and elbows and everything else. And growing up, my sisters, coconut oil in their hair, on the face. Um, you had a problem with your ears, coconut oil. Everything was coconut oil. Well, everybody found out about coconut oil and we can't afford coconut oil anymore. They're adding the word virgin to it and organic. What is a non-organic coconut tree? Right. I, I don't understand that. <laughs> It grows wild out in your backyard. It's all organic. But you touch these words, they add a price to it, and then we can't afford it anymore. And everybody's into it. You know what I mean? Sawasup is probably the next one they're going to go after. Who knows? You know what I mean? So each culture has that goji berry that everybody's. And you know, here's the thing with the coconut oil. They will add a scented oil to it. And then you got to pay even more for it. You know what I mean? Like, why? You yeah. don't need that. And you're, you're taking away the natural beauty of it by adding these yeah. things, right? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, look at Bragg's all-purpose all seasoning. You know, why is it so bad to, to celebrate, like, like, I mean, there's even a whole book about MSG and its origins. Right. You know, there's more MSG in your bag of lay chips than, than a meal out in Chinese food. Right. And, you know, as, you know, as he, he, he describes how things are added to add values, there are labels added to our culture that decreases our values, and that is one of them. So while that's happening and this decreasing, who's out there to, to balance that out? You know, on the topic of MSG, you know, a lot of people order food and they're like, no MSG when they're, when they're calling to the restaurant. Why do you think MSG got such a bad rap to it? And can you kind of let people know how many things have MSG in it? <laughs> I, mean, I think Trevor actually said one time at 
some food, something that there was MSG in, um, it's some, I know you just said a bag of chips, but there was like some everyday sort of things that. Well, here's the thing. Growing up in Hawaii, you know, it's very distinct when I'm going to a Caucasian house and when I'm not. Most of my friends in my village are not Caucasian. So I travel uptown in Hawaii to go to these beautiful houses. And then when I eventually moved to the States, you know, I, I, I can say that I visited a lot of Caucasian households going, going after school, going for dinners and stuff. And every household I've been into has chicken bouillon. That is MSG. Vegetable bouillon. There you go. That is MSG. Brags, that's MSG. So, like, I never quite understood why soy sauce got chosen, you know, to be the ambassador of MSG. Why was it Chinese food that got, you know, why, why not juicy jumbos? Those all have more MSG than you can ever imagine. So, like, I, for me, it was always mind-boggling how Asian food got chosen to carry that rep when it was everywhere we are. Right. So interesting. Okay, what I really want to talk about more, we, I mean, we've been talking about food, but I want to know what your favorite street foods are. Like, it doesn't even have to be from your background. It could just be, like, what is your, this is the go-to. I really like ice cream. Like, I like ice cream in a very unhealthy manner. Okay. I'm, not, I'm not a sweet tooth. It's just ice cream. Like regular degula ice cream? Yeah, I was going to say. Like, what are you saying? So <laughs> there's, this, there's this one street food that is really hard to get, get right now, this moment. Um, and I only get it when I go home to Singapore. And it is a piece of bread with a slab of ice cream. And that is it. Like, I'm talking a slice of white bread. But this, this, old, this old grandpa, he does it with this coconut shredded white bread. And I'm talking like half an inch thick. Like, he just takes out a block of ice cream, and he slices a big, thick yeah. slab, and he puts it in between bread, and I can, I probably eat, like, five. So an ice cream like, sandwich. A true ice cream sandwich. <laughs> but a true ice cream sandwich with, like, bread. Right. To me, ice, ice cream is my guilty pleasure and my favorite street so food. So are you bringing that here? Probably. I think I might do that. <laughs> You're welcome for the idea. Did I give you that idea? <laughs> <laughs> um, but for me, it's always looking for different ice creams, you know. And number two is also always looking for charcoal grilled food on the street. Those are the two things I look for. Okay, so it's not necessarily the food. It's the process in which it's made. Okay, I yeah. like that. I did, that was not the answer I was thinking you were going to say. I mean, I didn't think you were going to I didn't know what I thought you would say, but I didn't think it was going to be a charcoal-based Whatever. Yeah, anything that's cooked on the fire and anything that's ice cream-like, frozen okay. like semi-fredo. Well, what's the flavor of ice cream you didn't mention? Uh, I really like pandan. Pandan's my number one favorite ice cream. You see, like you're saying things that I didn't think was going to happen. So pandan, that's um, like it's a leaf, right? Yes. And it's, it gives off notes. a really bright uh, like green color yeah. until the light hits it, right? Yes. yes. Light that's hits it and it turns frozen. white. Yes. And then um, they usually infuse it in a coconut milk-based ice cream. Anything coconut ice cream is my go-to, usually. I love coconut ice cream, homemade. Well, I learned something today. We have a chameleon leaf changing colors flavoring ice cream. I've got to go search that out, man. Eva? The reason why I know the pandan (laughs) is because there's pandan cake that I learned about. So that's why I know about that. But yeah, it just, once light hits it. Yeah. I'll tell so you, you have to like soak it for like days to really extract it. that green or freeze it. Okay. I, I freeze it and I juice it. It goes to the juicer faster. Um, pandan, pandan, it's not just for sweet things. Like my, one of my favorite things is it's a pandan marinated chicken cooked on charcoal. 
And I try to recreate mm. that any day I could. And, you know, since I've, since I've been cooking in North America, I've always been trying to find ways to incorporate chicken in my dishes. Chicken and rice is usually my number one go-to. Can you it's, explain a little bit more? Yeah, what style of chicken? Well, first of all, chicken and rice, if you look at it, almost most immigrant third world country has their version of chicken and rice. Mm -hmm. Let it be chicken curry, let yep. it be chicken saute, Hainanese chicken rice, you know, chicken compollo. Like there are many different types of chicken yeah. rice. And because that to me is the most humblest of humblest, it's the humble meat versus mm -hmm. the humble starch. Yeah. And you know, come you know, half of my family's from Singapore, Malaysia. So I'm I'm biased. My I will always choose <laughs> chicken rice. My mom always used to say, like, I'd be like, Mom, what's for dinner? Like, Sunday's always chicken <laughs> and rice, right? Yeah. And I'm like, again? She's like, you don't want chicken and rice? I'm like, no. She's like, okay, fine. Rice and chicken. I'm like, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's, it's what you said. And when I think about, like, my favorite street foods, especially traveling, like, you mentioned about the grill. Like, anything that's on a grill that you can smell before you see it. Yes. That's the kind of stuff that really, really really pulls me in like a nice grilled chicken so do you ever try to re recreate that feeling here oh, I like, do yeah? I, I try you know like I'm, I'm actually definitely allergic to peanuts but I still I still use it and I cook with it you know oh. saute is a very big thing in my family mm -hmm. every family has their own you know marinade own recipe and own ratio for saute and I, I find Canadian chicken as, you know, very similar to the chicken I grew up in in Southeast Asia. Right. And I really like making sauté chicken here in Canada. Nice, nice. Yeah, you know, speaking about chicken, um, <laughs> when my sister visits from the Caribbean, she always comments about the chicken mm -hmm. taste and texture of the chicken here in Canada. Right. And I was like, what do you mean? And mm -hmm. it's only after I visited the States and I bought chicken in the oh, States. huge difference. Don't tell the guys at the border I brought it over. <laughs> but I brought it over. Man, I, it was not edible. There was yeah. something about it, something to Water. Right. Yeah, Tastes like and, water. Yeah, and the, probably the antibiotics and all that stuff they put in it there where we're free of that stuff here in Canada. Right. But I'm going to circle back to the whole street food thing and yeah. my favorite because I didn't get the chance. Eva just went on and on and on. <laughs> Very passionate about her, her upbringing and her culture. And I am too. <laughs> Nothing beats a good doubles. And I'll tell you why. Mm. The sauces. You go from the, the pepper sauce or hot sauce tamarind. to the sweet sauce to the tamarind to the chutney or the, uh, like a good cucumber chutney. Right. So that adds a brightness to it. And then if you're into heat, mm -hmm. and I see my friend over here, mouthwater, you know, right? <laughs> um, and then you add the roast pepper to that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I would then move over and I would say a bacon shark sandwich. And the reason mm. for the bacon shark is the who and the where and, and, and everything else. Because usually when you go to the beach and you buy this at Maracas Bay in Trinidad, and you have your friends with you and you're having a good time, the sun is hot, you probably have an adult beverage. So you add all those aspects to it. And I love a good bacon shark sandwich. But mm. in Canada, the number one street food for me and the number one sandwich for me, a good banh mi. Man, I love okay. a good banh mi. Yeah. <laughs> A banh mi, and you got to have that right proportion of heat in there. So sometimes you get a Thai chili all chopped up in yeah. there. And that's cilantro. I know cilantro is not for everybody, but for me. Super polarizing. Oh, man. I yeah. love it. Have you been to Tong Hing? I haven't. That's my go-to place. Really? There's a Vietnamese, yeah. a Thai place? Or they've Vietnamese, been open, place? Vietnamese have been open for 40-something years, and they make everything from scratch, from the mayo to the pate to the bread. Where are they located? The bread. I'm glad you touched on that bread. There is something about the French colonizing that area, and they taking that bread that mm -hmm. they learned from the French and just 
Yeah. Making it magnificent, man. I just love that bread they, they make, the handmade kind of thing. Yeah. So you said 45 years. Any, I'm, I'm de- any place that... Tongking Bakery last. at my restaurant, we also bring in their baguette. Okay. Um, you know, you're right. The Vietnamese are very strong in baking, mm-hmm. thanks to the French colonization. They took a French baguette recipe and they, they added more aeration to it. They use rice flour. And so the density is, is not as strong and it just captures the bread and the, the meat and the veg and the sauce and the pickles perfectly. That sounds amazing. And I do want to add in that I feel like with a lot of these like cheap eats or street foods, it's about the experience also. So you touched on going to Maracas and getting mm-hmm. the bacon shark. Same thing with doubles. Like for me, I... I don't ever get doubles here because I want the full experience. So I'll explain to you guys. Um, so when you go to Trinidad, it's like like a kiosk set up on the sidewalk. And you have the experience of standing there while a bunch of people are all waiting. And there's this one guy kind of up on a podium a little bit. And he has all these buckets. So one bucket has all like the curry chana in it. The other buckets have, you know, all the sauces. But you're standing there with your napkin in your hand. And then they come, they just put the bara on your hand, which is like this the flat bread kind of part thing. And then they just like fill it up. They're like, here you go. And then when you're done, you have like a little top, not even a top, but like a... Yeah, like a cooler. with Like a cooler. Yeah, Yeah. a cooler with the water to rinse off your hand. It's like a full experience. You know what I mean? So it's like when I'm here, I don't really want it because you're getting it you're getting it wrapped up and then you're taking it and then it just dries up. Like I and want it fresh. I want it on the spot. To add to what Azilia is saying is also an etiquette as well and understanding that if you're eating there, you get served first and there's a line and a reserved area for you to eat first. When you're finished eating yours, so if you're buying to pick up, you've got to wait until they feed me. So every time I'm done, I'm expecting another one hot in my hand. You hang on to that napkin that they gave you. Napkins, we, I don't know if we're environmentally conscious or what, but they, they hold back on the napkins. But there's an etiquette about it as well, too, because you can't just come and bunch in line and say, well, I'm ready to go. No, these guys eating, they get served first. And, yo, know, that whole experience, it's, it's totally, man. Um, I'm very lucky. One of my, one of my cooks, um, she's a 50-year-old Caribbean lady. Mm-hmm. And um, I think once a month we request a, a full-on experience that she controls on how she wants to serve and, and share her culture with us. And she did that once. She made doubles and she made like six different types of sauces and she made us all line up and plated our plates for us and, yeah. and yeah. gave us all these different sauces. It was amazing. Um, so that's something I, 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 it didn't really hit me earlier when we, you know, we prep and we think about what we want to talk about. But there's a wrap on... West Indian restaurants about service, what the experience is like. But I think sometimes what gets lost is things that are very unique to culture and where things come from um, and the way we do things that, you know, feels like home, that's acceptable. Um, And, you know, nothing's perfect, obviously, but there's very, very, very intricate kind of things that when it feels like it doesn't line up with like a North American value system, I think that also kind of contributes to people thinking like this is not an ideal um, food for celebration or I shouldn't be paying a lot for this or this isn't as civil. So why would I have this at a sit down dinner? Do you guys kind of feel the same way about that? Like, do you do you how 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 much do you internalize like the critiques of of an experience um, versus, you know, things that are just kind of ours and the way that we do things and the, the way that like anyone that is of or from the culture kind of understands. 
Well, I mean, I would go back to the topic of bones and shells. Right. You know, most of the food that we celebrate on the streets, you know, they do contain bones. They could do contain shells. Like in Singapore, black pepper crab, chili crab, that, that's a premium item. Mm -hmm. That's not a cheap item. That is a celebration. That's a feast to go out for. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, when I was chef at Momofuku here in Toronto, that was the hardest thing to sell. And the most complaints I got because diners were complaining it got their hands dirty. It's food. And they expected a restaurant that was like in that manner to not have to serve shellfish like that. But why? On what, what point in our civilization did we decide that we were too good to break our own shells for food? Thank you. And that was considered uh, a peasant food, you Thank know? You. So these things, these things affect cultures mm -hmm. that celebrate that. Right. And, you know, to me, it, it still baffles my mind that I still have to think twice whenever I try to feature something premium in my culture and how do I present it here. I jokingly say that um, when you go to a Caribbean restaurant, you get served an extra side condiment of attitude. Because <laughs> there always is an attitude and we always are... Can I get this? And they're like, oh no, sold out. No, cook, it's yeah. always sold out yeah. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I complain about service and the decor and everything else about Caribbean restaurants. But when somebody else says it, right. it gets me angry. I don't want to hear it. Yeah, you know what you. I mean? I, I complain, you. but please don't, don't knock my culture kind right. of thing, right? And you're yeah. quite right. It is part of who we are kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, if a little bit of attitude means I'm eating good after, I'm going to put up with that little bit of attitude. Hey. You know what I mean? And those restaurants and are rammed. Testament to how incredible the food is. And you know, here's the thing. Eh? Maybe it is, and with the original question we had earlier on there about the pricing and the value and everything else, maybe if they're allowed to charge a bit more, mm -hmm. maybe they won't be as bitter. Who knows? I, I don't know. I'm just saying money talks, right? Yeah, there's I'm a putting value to what they're doing, and maybe we don't value it enough. That's why they're always, you know what I mean? We encounter these things. I agree fully, fully. So I think one major issue in, um, I would say, in Canada, um, well, no, we'll, we'll do North America, is that a lot of people, when they think of Caribbean food, immediately they think jerk chicken. Yes. So it's like, how do we educate people and let them know that Caribbean food is not only just jerk chicken, like the Caribbean is not Jamaica. It's not, there's so many other islands involved. And I know you focus on, you know, all your other recipes are not just Trini food, which we touched on earlier. But, like, how do we educate people? How do we let them know? You know, and when I first started this, I, I started CaribbeanPod.com to document recipes for my daughters who were going to go off to university. At some point, Canada is home. They're proud Canadians, but the kitchen represents that of the Caribbean, of Trinidad and Tobago. I could have called it TrinidadPod.com, but I saw an opening to educate people on exactly that. The jerk chicken, the curry goat, the curry chicken, the roti. And, you know... Every restaurant you go to have that already, and maybe that is part of the problem. We don't give people other options kind of thing. Because you find, you know, I read an article, 28 million people traveled to the Caribbean about six years ago or something like that as tourists. When they come back, a huge chunk of those people come to my website because they tasted other things on the islands when they were there and they want to recreate it. So by me documenting, teaching, and curating these recipes, because pretty much I'm curating it as well, not just for our culture, but for everybody to enjoy. That is where I'm hoping people see that I'm trying to 
make it known that it is not about own, and you know there's nothing wrong about jerk chicken and curry goat i'm very proud to call those things mine kind of thing I've, I've taken ownership of it because i am from the caribbean uh, i got curry cum blood flowing through my hands my veins kind of thing but there's so much right we need to pay attention and educate and even us there's three of us here with Caribbean origins. When we do introduce people to food, let's not take them for that jerk chicken. Yeah, the jerk chicken is nice. But let's go and eat something else. Well, let's try and make something else at home and, and expose them to that. You know what I mean? I feel that way about poke. You know, coming from Hawaii, everyone just... The first thing they say is poke, but no one actually knows what poke is. Poke is not even a dish name. Poke, <laughs> poke means to cube. Okay. It means to cube. Or cubed. <laughs> so I'm like, everyone's throwing poke around when it became a trend about five years ago. And I'm like, you guys have no idea. It's not It's not even like, not served with rice. And it's not with a Subway-style format of toppings. It never was. Mm. Poke is always pre-mixed. Get it in a cone. Just small enough for you to, to eat it before it gets warm out in the ocean and jump in the sea. Paper's recyclable. It's pre-mixed. And very specific sauces come with very specific toppings for that texture and crunch, and that's it. It is not load your own poke bowl day. That is something I never understood. No <laughs> rice. No rice. You know, as soon as I heard that Eva has the, the Hawaiian, Hawaii, is it Hawaii you guys say? Hawaii. Hawaii. Yeah. I was going to bring up the whole poke thing because I have a, he's a friend in Hamilton, and he went on about how he brought poke to Canada. And I was like, that's very Columbus of you. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> very Columbus of you to say, well, yeah, you kind of, okay, whatever, man. But I always wanted to know, and I've never had the opportunity to travel to Hawaii yet. But um, at some point I will, and I'd love to get that full experience, the, the origin of it kind of thing, because it, doesn't, it didn't sit well with me with the way when he <laughs> went on and on, even in articles, like in, in newspaper articles, you went on about it. And I'm like, okay, partner. Yeah, credit credit for, the, that, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. But as this, you know, this is the More Than Podcast. So we'd love to ask our guests, you know, um, what they feel, you know, certain things that people put in a box are actually more than. So if we can pull up uh, some of our questions on the screen and you're both Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, I can't remember what the question is. That's fine. I will take over. <laughs> Caribbean food is more than blank. Well, we, we already answered I know. That. Well, we are, well, say it again. It's more than <laughs> jerk chicken. It's more than curry goat. It's more than that rice and peas and that bland old white rice we seem to want to have with everything. And add a little padang leaves or something. Padang? Add a little pandang leaves in there, man. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Asian food is more than? Asian food is more than MSG. Here we go. And then we were adding a third question, but we forgot. Yeah, when are they going to cook We did not. Oh, yeah. That was the question. Yeah, when are we, when are we going to eat together? That's the third question. And we could do that right after. That wasn't the question. The question is, when are you going to cook for us? <laughs> We want food. Well, I heard him. I heard the question was, "When are you going to eat?" And I, earlier, I saw you guys with the chopsticks going crazy over there. Yeah. And I'm like, "But you just ate." <laughs> I'm ready to eat the second round all the time, and I'm still so so salty about that super crispy piece of pork that I dropped. <laughs> I left it 
to be the last thing on my plate <laughs> for a reason. I heard it fall. I gotta ask, did you have brothers and sisters growing up? I have a, a younger sister. A younger sister. You didn't yeah. have a brother? No. Because growing up, we, we went, you know, <laughs> small, well, we weren't rich, so one chicken had to feel the entire family, and we mm-hmm. usually had leftovers for Monday to mom to make something with it. Yeah. You take the biggest piece of chicken and put it on your plate, but my brother was always eyeing it out. You blink your eye, and that piece of chicken is gone, man. <laughs> you know, Chris, Chris Rock talk about the big. Was it Chris Rock that talked about a big piece of chicken for, yes. for dad? No, no, it was us fighting for it, man. Oh, man. You blink your eye, that's gone. That and the glass of juice, that homemade juice we would have. Yeah. Yo, man, it's as if he had an imaginary straw. I don't know how he would do it. That glass would be in front of me. Right. My juice is gone. Yeah, no, oh, you, you blink. Yeah, yeah man. <laughs> My sister would play the, like, I'm the cute little sister game and be like, I'm finished. Can I have some of yours? And I'm like, <laughs> but, like, I just could never say no. Yeah. And as, ba- as badly as I wanted to. <laughs> so. I grew up with three siblings. Yeah. If you don't eat fast, you don't eat at all. Right. That's it. That's so, so true. <laughs> yeah, That's that so, so true. <laughs> um, this was great. This was so, so good. The only thing I have a complaint about is I'm starving now. Um, but no, thank you for your time, for your insights. This was so, so valuable. Uh, anything that you guys have coming up uh, want us to, to know about, want people to know about, where can everybody find you and experience more of your wonderfulness? I will be heading to Vancouver to uh, cook, with more, cook with Lucas more on behalf of Soilet Club and uh, spread more of our Chinese banquet cooking stories. My problem was, is um, I connect with about 1.3 to 1.5 million people every month. And we have a word in Trinidad where we say mama guy, which means I could be fooling you and you don't know. I could be mama guy and them with my recipes for all they know. It doesn't taste good. So I want to give people an actual taste of my food. So I'm, I'm in consideration of doing some pop-ups and some, some other things where people can actually taste my han, as we say in the Caribbean, the sweet han I have here. Um, and um, beyond that, I'm working on a couple more cookbooks. I really want to start pushing that out there again, spreading the, the culture broad, and, um, but more so cooking for people because the only people I really cook for is my children, my girlfriend, uh, my parents the odd time. And the, the thing is, and I don't know, if, Eva, if you encounter this, but people don't invite me to the house to eat anymore. Me too. <laughs> They're all worried that I'm going to... I'm not a critique. I don't critique your food. I know. I mean, yeah, what I'm is that about? I'm invited over and cooked for, too. <laughs> no. I even visited my aunt on the way back from the last event in Oshawa there, and she had pizza, and she goes... Yeah, I didn't really want to cook for you, you know, because I know you as a chef. I'm like, what? No, I know. I agree. You have the same problem with me, too. Mm-hmm. Chefs need love, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one more time. Where can people find you on Instagram? Uh, Ride to Wander. Ride to Wander. I am at Caribbean Pot, um, youtube.com slash Caribbean Pot and CaribbeanPot.com. All right. I like it when it's the same, straight yeah, through. Try. All right. Thank you guys so much for joining us. This is More Than Cheap Eats. Thank you. Certainly my pleasure. Thanks for having me.